0: buy me a Mercedes My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amens. Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast One Man's Musings on the works of Stephen King Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King In the chronological order of publication And this week <clears throat> This week I am reviewing <laughs> A novel that made me seriously question whether or not I wanted to do a Stephen King retrospective analysis week by week um, on, on, on a podcast. Because the thought of having to reread this book was that troubling to me that it almost made me throw out the possibility of rereading all of the books that I loved. You see, just a few years ago, Stephen King decided to take a stab. At writing some crime fiction a, a and, and introduced us to uh, a detective and um, I'm fine with that I'm totally fine with that and I'm not complaining about that but the the, the novel that he gave us was Mr. Mercedes a novel that I couldn't wait to read um, and I think that it was marketed very very well and like any Stephen King book when I start reading it I, I tend to get sucked in this one after a few pages I had to put it away I was like maybe I'm just not in the mood right now and I kept trying to get back to it and I could never get into it you know I it's a great metaphor um, but its it's been used to death and all I think of is friends but I, I just felt stuck in second gear and I, I couldn't get past it I couldn't get into a higher speed and it just it never clicked in for me I just don't think that it's his best, and it was a book that I certainly was not looking forward to to reviewing at all. And I'll get into this in in much more detail later in the episode, but first, uh, before I get any further, I just want to read a listener email. And this comes from Jennifer, who writes... Dear Constant Reader, it's Jennifer again. I recently listened to your podcast on The Stand and was blown away. They are fantastic, and I want to thank you for something in particular. I've always liked the ending of The Stand, but kind of subscribed to the he-couldn't-figure-out-how-to-end-it-so-he-just-blew-everything-up theory. Your analysis of how it's really about these characters standing up to evil, and if they even if they can't defeat it by themselves, and how that relates to the title, is something that I hadn't thought of before. Thank you for adding new meaning to this book I thought I knew so well. So, The Stand is my all-time favorite book, and I've lost how many times I've read or listened to it. As an adolescent, my favorite characters were, of course, Stu and Franny, with Nick a close third, but as an adult, Harold and Larry kept standing out to me, and now I think they're the most interesting. I agree with you that they're the two with the biggest arcs, and those arcs are mirrors um, of each other centered around the ability centered around the ability to let go of the past. I was really annoyed by the actor who played Larry in the miniseries, and as a result, I was bored with the Larry sections in the book as a kid. I recently listened to a Faculty of Horror podcast in which one of the hosts said that the part was played by Dale Midkiff, a hilarious and totally understandable mistake. Um, But revisiting the book, I really identified with Larry. He's hindered by his selfishness and self-centeredness, which is rooted in a mix of narcissism and insecurity. He knows he has talent, but that he can also be kind of a jerk. He's afraid that people will find out he's a jerk, so he keeps them at arm's length. When he does make meaningful connections with his mother and Rita, they both die, and he feels responsible. So now he's afraid that people will find out that not only is he selfish, but that his inadequacies have caused the deaths, and that he's not worthy of trust or responsibility. His arc is really about him letting go of those fears, becoming comfortable with himself, and finding the confidence to lead. In your podcast, you ask why Stu goes on the quest, and here are my thoughts. There are some practical plot reasons, but I think the main one is that Stu serves as a guide or mentor for Larry. Harold helped him get to Boulder, and Stu helps him complete his journey to Las Vegas and ultimately redemption. Stu is the one who convinces him to join the committee, even when Larry is set against having any kind of authority in Boulder. Stu emulates his actions spilling his story to Franny and not trusting Harold, and finds him worthy even though Larry is not sure himself yet. Despite being the youngest and the least involved in the free zone planning, he's second in command when they set out. Without Stu to start the journey, I don't think Larry would be ready or willing to lead them to Las Vegas. He only does it when Stu is injured because there's no other choice. Larry doesn't come fully into himself until the jail cell in Las Vegas, and I think that it's necessary for Stu to start the walk as the leader and then pass the responsibility on to Larry. I've often thought of the line, he's come out of the other side in my own life, and I always think of Larry. He goes through the struggle to let go of his past fears and how others will see him and how he sees himself, and he comes out the other side as a confident and competent leader. Harold. I told my husband I think Harold is the true tragedy in the book, and he looked at me and said, you mean the book where everyone in the world dies? I feel so much sympathy for Harold because I totally understand where he's coming from. Like, like Larry, Harold suffers from a mix of narcissism, how smart he is, and insecurity, his constant need to prove it. I think most of this stems from his parents' disapproval of him. If the two people in the world who are supposed to love you no matter what don't, How can you ever truly believe anyone else, Will? When watching the miniseries, I got the impression that Harold had been in love with Frenny for a long time, but in the book, she could be anyone. His feelings for her have more to do with possessing her and proving to himself that he's the kind of man she would want than any real emotions. She is the way to erase all of the girls who rejected him in school, and when Stu enters the picture, he represents all the jocks in school who got the girl when Harold never could. The love triangle is more about Harold's need to establish himself in their little society than any feelings he may have had for Franny. He's so hurt and angry about the way he's been treated in the past, and he can't let go and see that he's had an opportunity to change. I also think he's angry to think that he likes the one who needs to do the changing. No, sorry. That I also think he's angry to think that he's the one who needs to do the changing. How dare you not understand me? How dare you not like me? How dare you suggest that I'm responsible for how I'm viewed and treated by others? It's when Harold lets his guard down, mowing the grass after the gunfight on the road on the body removal crew, and shows some vulnerability that he begins to form real relationships, and we see glimmers of who he could be. However, this would mean continuing to be vulnerable, and that's too uncomfortable for him. He chooses Nadine, a relationship he knows that will never be real over a place in the Free Zone. Boulder offers Harold a chance to let go of the past, and Flag offers him a chance to embrace it and seek revenge. I've recently seen Star Wars The Force Awakens, and not to spoil anything, but one character really reminds me of Harold. There's a scene in the movie that made me start to wonder how much Harold knows that Flag, who he sees as kind of a guide, is really a manipulator who will crush him and throw him away once he's served his purpose. I think part of Harold knows this, but that pull to get to revenge, to the dark side, is so strong that he either chooses to ignore it or just doesn't care. It's a shame that unlike the Star Wars character, there doesn't seem to be anyone in Harold's life who cares enough about him to try to help him see the truth. Maybe Franny, but we never see a real attempt and it's not enough. The line, I could have been someone in Boulder, breaks my heart every time because it's so true. We can all relate to times in our lives when we've felt picked on or ostracized. What ends up defining us as adults is how we choose to deal with it. Harold's tragic flaw is that he's never able to see the bigger picture and rise above who he was. Ultimately, Larry is redeemed because he is able to let go of the past and Harold is damned because he lets the past consume him. On a lighter note, here's my personal Dreamcast: Stu, Bradley Cooper, Franny, Amy Adams, maybe Jennifer Lawrence, Nick, Michael B. Jordan. Larry, Zach Efron. Don't laugh, I think he'd be great. Or Justin Timberlake. Harold, Jesse Eisenberg. Tom, maybe Chris Pratt. Nadine, I always picture Angelina Jolie, but she's probably too old now. My husband suggested Anna Paquin, but I don't see it. Flag, of course, Matthew McConaughey, but it looks like it's not going to happen. I think Tommy, Timothy Oliphant would be great. While watching him in the office, I was fixated on his perfect teeth, which would make the scene with Bobby Terry interesting. Once again, thank you so much for your hard work. I love the Stephen King cast and can't wait for the next episode. Jennifer, Jennifer, thank you for writing in. This was a great email. Um, great analysis of the relationship between uh, Stu and Harold. I love it. I love it. I and I think that you're 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 totally you're dead on. Um, and thanks for fan casting. I think that that's that's a lot of fun. Um, I, I I think that Zac Efron would be great. As larry I, I really like that i really like that choice um so if anyone else out there has any thoughts on the stand um and wants to do any fan casting of any of king's books uh feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com okay guys what i'm going to do now i'm going to read the wikipedia summary of mr mercedes so i have a basis upon which i can build my analysis The novel starts with a scene in which jobless people stand in line for a job fair when a Mercedes rides into the crowd and kills eight people and injures many severely. Immediately after that, the protagonist is introduced, Bill Hodges, a former police detective retired for six months. He is divorced, lonely, and fed up with his life, occasionally considering suicide. Suddenly, he receives a letter signed by Mr. Mercedes, who claims to be the Mercedes killer. The incident had taken place at the end of Hodges' career and was still unresolved when retired. Mr. Mercedes knows details of the murder and also mentions Olivia Trelawney from whom he had stolen the Mercedes. She committed suicide soon after the massacre. Hodges is intrigued and starts to investigate the case instead of turning the letter over to his former police colleague, Keith Huntley. A new perspective in the novel opens with the introduction of Brady Hartsfield, the Mercedes killer is revealed that this emotionally disturbed man in his late twenties lost his father at age eight. When he was a young boy, he killed his mentally handicapped brother at his mother's prompting. He now lives and has an insensuous relationship with his alcoholic mother and works as an electronic shop. Works in an electronic shop and as an ice cream seller, riding in a van. His second job enables him to observe Hodges and Hodges' neighbors, among them seventeen-year-old Jerome Robinson, who does little chores for Hodges. During his research about the wealthy Olivia Trelawney, Hodges meets meets her sister, Janie, who hires him to investigate Olivia's suicide and the stealing of the Mercedes. They become a couple. Hodges finds out, with the help of a bright, computer-savvy Jerome, how Mr. Mercedes stole the car and drove Olivia, whom he had made contact with through his job at the electronics shop, to suicide by leaving creepy sound files on her computer. They were set to go off at unpredictable intervals, which worked on her feelings of guilt. Olivia, when hearing these sounds, believes them to be the ghosts of the victims of the Mercedes massacre. At the funeral of Janie and Olivia's ill mother, Hodges meets Janie's unpleasant relatives. Among them, Janie's emotionally unstable cousin, Holly. After the funeral, Mr. Mercedes blows up Hodges' car not realizing that Hodges wasn't in the car, Janie was. She is killed. Hodges feels remorse, but becomes even more eager to solve the case without the help of the police. Holly joins Hodges and Jerome in the investigation. Hartsfield accidentally kills his mother with a poison hamburger which he had prepared for Jerome's dog. With her rotting body in the house, he plans to kill himself by blowing he plans to kill himself by blowing himself up at a giant concert for young girls. The concert will be attended by Jerome's mother and little sister. Hodges, Jerome and Holly manage to uncover Brady's real identity and search his computer hard drives. As they suspect a different location to be Mr. Mercedes Target, they come late to the concert, but not too late. While Hodges has a heart attack and is taken to the hospital, Jerome and Holly succeed in preventing Brady from detonating his explosives. In the epilogue, Jerome and Holly are rewarded with the Medal of the City. Hodges is lucky not to be charged for his irresponsible conduct. Brady, who had been beaten by Holly into a coma, wakes up. Analysis Gray Mercedes King introduces his mystery thriller with two of our soon-to-be killer's victims. Augie and Janice. Well, three if you count her baby. King makes a commentary on the current job market and economy as these two, along with hundreds of others, gather for a job fair in the hopes of finding work. It's an effective opening, fattening up the sheep before the slaughter. All in all, it's a good sequence, well-structured. He nails the setting with the growing fog and vulnerability of the characters at their most helpless. And with the financial inequality being what it is, how perfect is it that we have a mercedes mowing down jobless folks desperate to make a living. Unfortunately, this is the highlight of the book. I mean, everything after this point can't match the opening, even the ending, which feels derivative of other Stephen King novels, which end in flames. Specifically, the threat of stopping a mass murderer before he's able to blow up a civic center was already the conclusion to Insomnia. And the villain uh, wheeling around in a disguise in a wheelchair um, was already done in Rose Matter*. I'm gonna to get to all of that, and and the um, the fact that 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 Brady is derivative of other Stephen King characters. I'll get to that later. But though it's a different book and a different genre entirely from Rose Matter, from um, Insomnia, it, it does give this a "been there, done that" feel. Debt Rat, and now we meet Bill Hodges, our hero, who is summed up with four objects. One, a beer. Two, a remote. Three, a lazy boy. Four, a gun. King details at length the pathetic life that he's living, telling us that Bill has even placed the revolver of the gun in his mouth. It's great to see him living in despair, but it'd be more effective if this was the moment he slipped the gun into his mouth. We don't even get that. We get the narrator telling us that it's happened before. Anyway, he's saved by the mail drop, which includes a letter from Brady, a.k.a. Mr. Mercedes, and with the letter, the cat-and-mouse chase is on. And in under 30 pages, so there's not a lot of fat to this book. Hodges immediately begins analyzing the letter, identifying the unusual words, one-sentence paragraphs, capitalized phrases, etc. It's important to see Hodges as a detective, and without any other examples of evidence, to see him pour over this letter is a great opportunity. But as, smart as, uh, but as smart as Brady presents himself to be, he reveals two errors. His penchant for writing numbers rather than spelling them out, and believing the word perp is actually perk. And as for the author of the note, we meet him, and King reveals that this isn't Hannibal Lecter. He's working in a Best Buy-type store, hates everyone, lives with his alcoholic mother, has killed his brother, and has a ton of plastic explosives in his basement. Ladies and gentlemen, meet brady hartsfield harold lauder 2.0 and i think that's very fitting that i read a letter an email um, all about harold at the beginning of this podcast i think that fits perfectly with what stephen king is doing with uh, brady hartsfield in this book when we checked back in with bill king starts to dole out information pertaining to the original case specifically around the owner of the mercedes mrs Trelawney, who more than likely left her keys in the ignition or so we're led to believe under Debbie's blue umbrella. So we get to know the characters a bit more, especially Brady, who we'll talk about uh, extensively later. But it's here when King introduces one of the more problematic aspects of this novel, and that's how he treats Jerome. Jerome is the intelligent, charismatic, capable, kind, funny friend of Hodge's, and at this point, we've already seen how Brady thinks of him. Which is one thing because it's a dislikable character. So if he's racist, he's also a serial killer. So I mean, that's that. You know, whatever. However, here we get the introduction to Jerome, to Jerome's big joke with Bill, and that's that he's a slave, Bill's slave. I'm sorry, that he's a slave to Bill's slaver, slave owner. And I get that it's a joke, but it's just it's not fun. It's not funny. You know, I mean, whether it's Jerome leaving a note referring to Bill as Massa Hodges, writing, I has mowed your grass and put Demoa back in yo car capote. I hopes you didn't run it over, sir. Or Bill saying, yo, my homie, you keeping them bitches in line? They earning? You representin?" It just, I, I guess I'll give him points for having the joke within the narrative be an unfunny joke. It's something that Hodges himself doesn't find comfortable and King I think takes that next step in in finders keepers um, and refers to it and says something along the lines of like Bill was thankful that Jerome didn't, didn't do that anymore um, but I just like I've said before in the Stephen King cast it's just unnecessary it's not needed it just makes me feel uncomfortable for what? Why can't he just be a funny capable confident kid Like, why, why, why have him and Bill have this weird, not funny joke? And if this skeeves you out, I mean, just wait for the next scene in which King suggests that Brady regularly has sex with his mother or some sexual relation, at the very least. So, I mean, not only do you have a homicidal maniac, A, he is racist, B, And has sex with his mother. C. So King is just covering all the grounds. So it kind of was unfair for me to refer to him as Harold Lauder 2.0 because at least Harold Lauder, as seen in the email earlier, um, was down on. He was he was grounded in reality. Brady is just it's too much, you know. And I, I I keep. I keep wanting to get to brady i will talk about brady later um and even though i'm complaining right now there is something that king could be doing with brady that i would call genius if it's on purpose if it's not on purpose um then it, he's just he's, he's a bumbling character uh but if what but i'll get to I'll, oh don't worry, sorry i'm trying to get ahead of myself but i'll get to all of that later now anyway with that icky romance of uh, Brady and his mother introduced, King introduces the clean romance between Bill and Janelle Patterson, the sister of Mrs. Trelawney, whose car was responsible for the murders. The meeting reveals that before her death, Trelawney had received a similarly styled letter from the killer. Hodges then taunts Brady by signing into Debbie's blue umbrella and tells him that he doesn't think that he's the killer. Just to taunt him. Um... Poison bait. Brady is thrown off-balance by Hodges' dismissal. Meanwhile, Hodges learns that Trelawney has heard the voices of ghosts before she killed herself. The relationship between Janet and Bill jumps to the next level, completely unexpected, as they become lovers. Reading the book a second time around, it still does not seem like a natural progression to me. I mean, not for the amount of time. Um, I, when the moment happens, it just it doesn't feel earned at that point. I'm not saying that they don't have a chemistry i'd actually argue that they don't but um you know i i can see that you know giving it a little bit of time it would work but to me it just does not feel believable at all brady prepares at length the steps that he'll take to poison jerome's dog now i don't like it when dogs die in fiction but this is a plot point that seems to get a lot of page time You know, it it all is a subterfuge because it it leads to the moment where Brady's mom eats the poisoned meat herself, bringing about her own death and just kind of showing Brady's buffoonery. Call for the dead. We learn about Brady's origin. That leads up to the moment when he and his mother silently conspire to kill his brain-damaged brother. Then Brady, having enough of Hodges, decides to enact his revenge by blowing him up at Janie's mother's funeral. Unfortunately for Bill, he accidentally blows up Janie instead. After the death, Jerome and Holly, Janie's relative, discover the source of the ghost that Olivia had heard an audio file planted on her computer. Kisses on the midway. Well, Bill finally determines it's Brady by discovering the computer repair trail followed to a picture of three technicians, one of whom he recognizes as the Ice Cream Man. Bill, Jerome, and Holly head to Brady's house to discover the mother and Bill, realizing it's time to inform the police does so, but miraculously, the ATV had busted a bunch of bad guys who the cops pin on the explosion at the funeral for some reason, and allows Bill to continue to operate freely. It's a convenient insertion of fortune into this story. It also takes a lot of the police off of working the concert that night, also a little too convenient. Then Hodges, who has not told the police, continues to make boneheaded decisions by dismissing the idea that Brady would target the Civic Center until Jerome and Holly, two characters who were actually competent, hacked the computers to discover that yes, he is targeting the Civic Center, which doesn't land with any weight because A, the reader had already known this, and B, the characters themselves flirted with this idea before dismissing it. And to make things worse, Jerome can't get through to his mom and sister at the concert, which to me is unbelievable. Okay, In the day and age of cell phones, I don't believe that he wouldn't be able to get through to them. They might not be able to pick up and physically talk on the phone because of the, the sound of the concert, but I guarantee you they'd be able to see a text because their phones would be out. There's no way in the world where uh, the younger sister would not be taking pictures of the band. So if he had texted, I guarantee you that uh, she would text back. They'd be able to get through. And in terms of suspension of disbelief, Brady just so happens to accidentally be in the proximity of Jerome's sister. And it's not even Hodges who saves the day. It's Holly and Jerome. In retrospect, Bill Hodges is the worst. He's the worst. He antagonizes Brady, which leads to Janie's death. He never tells the police. He dismisses the idea of Brady targeting the Civic Center. As a cop, he didn't talk to the Grand Theft Auto Detectives, which could have helped crack the case. And the finale, he's not even a part of it. This is one of King's most anticlimactic endings. And that's it. That's the book. Blue Mercedes. They just... Ends with our heroes celebrating and our villain awakening from his coma. Ready for round two. Okay? The ending, that very, very button of an ending. I'll give it a thumbs up. The rest of the book. I mean, come on. Okay, guys. Um I just want to talk about Brady. So let's talk about the marketing technique. If I'm gonna talk about Brady, I need to talk about how I was first introduced <coughs> to Brady one marketing technique that worked both for and against this book um, was that in the weeks leading up to its release came the viral videos showing some of king's most famous villains introducing brady mr mercedes you know granted the 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 horrors of the overlook are, are represented in this viral video um by a, for some reason, British Danny Torrance, Um, and these commercials also include the Shawshank Redemption, but I'd still argue that when you have Pennywise, Carrie White, and Annie Wilkes, ending each of their commercials with Meet Brady, Mr. Mercedes, it's an endorsement of King's newest villain. It immediately bumps him into a level of villainy that, frankly, he fails to earn once you start reading the book. However, my question is, is this intentional? Let's talk about Brady right now. I'm going to actually, what I would typically do is I would get to the Stephen Kingisms later, but let's talk about some of those Stephen Kingisms right now so we can start to establish a pattern. Stephen Kingism number one death by car or violent car crash. We have seen this. Since way back, way, way back when in, in Carrie, um, so we've seen in Carrie, in Dreamcatcher, in Insomnia, in the Gunslinger, uh, Christine from a Buick Eight, and others. So the idea of a killer car, it's been done before. Number two, smiley face signature. Mr. Mercedes' signature is the smiley face, more famously used by Randall Flagg, one of Stephen King's most legendary villains. Three, clown mask. Brady wears a clown mask, specifically Tim Curry's face, due to the fact that in this book, it was presumably a Stephen King book, but we know for sure that it was adapted into the movie that we all know. So not only are we getting a clown mask, we are getting Pennywise the clown mask, and not just any Pennywise, but the most famous incarnation of him portrayed by Tim Curry. Four, yellow gloves. Brady wears yellow gloves, much like Andre Linoge in the pages of not in the pages of, but in the in the um, Storm of the Century miniseries. And number five, too smart for his own good. As I've stated already, his character feels very reminiscent of the Stan's Harold Lauder. So to summarize, we have a killer that's identified as a clown, who wears the specific clown mask of one of King's most famous villains who wears yellow gloves like the murderer of a well-received television miniseries, who signs off with a smiley face like the multiverse-spanning fan-favorite devilish character, and uses a car as a weapon for his crimes. What is unarguable is that whether it's intentional or not, this character is a composite of better Stephen King villains. The question is, like I just said, whether or not this is intentional. If these similarities are unintentional, then the associations only serve to weaken this character. If this is the case, then it makes Brady the most derivative character he's ever created. Or maybe it is intentional. So let's play this out. After all, Brady is a fan of nearly every cop show ever put on television. So right there, he comes across as a fanboy without an original bone in his body and like the classic image of the nerdy fanboy, he lives in his mother's basement. Even his grand plan was seen in previous Stephen King stories, like I said already in the concluding pages of Insomnia where Ed Deepno intended to blow up the Civic Center. So if all of these similarities are intentional, then King is playing a very interesting metatextual game with us. Then the apparent weaknesses of the character are actually the strengths of the writer. If he functions as a redundant killer in the pages of Mr. Mercedes, it allows his coma to function as a clean slate. So in later books, when he awakens, he's a new man with his own identity. And spoiler alert for the the ending of Finders Keepers, that looks like that's what's happened here. What King does well with Brady is show us every squalid little thought in his head. Whether the character is an ingenious, ongoing experiment of character birthing into a supervillain from the fanboy trappings represented through Stephen King iconography, or whether he's a redundant, derivative, uninspired, third-rate bad guy, we get to know him thoroughly because of how well King puts us in his dirty little head. I mean, Brady is the classic example of hubris. He would have gotten away for his crime, but his own ego gets the better of him. He's too vain to get away with it. Like many of the killers in the books and movies he adores, he needs to get credit for his work. And the one thing about Brady, he's an equal opportunity hater. He hates, Hod- he hates Hodges for being fat, hates him for not catching him, hates Jerome because he's black, hates his co-workers because they're too dumb. And so, I mean, this character, for all the issues that I have with Mr. Mercedes, he does pop off of the page. And based on everything that I said about him being a composite of other stephen king villains it really makes me look forward to um the the final book of the mercedes trilogy end of watch to see exactly what king does with him and if he's going to be able to redeem this character and i just like to see where he grows because it will be able to put this particular novel into the context of a fully formed story that we aren't privy to yet by the end of Mr. Mercedes. Okay. Um, so there's a couple other Stephen King-isms, um, the first of which is the Hound of Heaven. Uh, and this is what Hodges refers to himself as. Now, this was associated... I'm um, sorry, this was seen with um, a good marriage in the in the novella collection of Full Dark, No Stars... And the reason why it's so important is because this poem was associated with Bolt Ramsey from a good marriage. And I feel as though that character, who was a retired detective, served as the prototype for Bill Hodges. Alright, and for Easter eggs here, uh we have Pennywise, um, which I've already talked about, and uh Round Here. Around uh, here is the boy band that has been populating King's books lately, first with Dr. Sleep and now with Mr. Mercedes. So, guys, uh, it's just over half an hour, and this is one of the shortest Stephen King cast episodes of a full length novel. It's just, like I said, I don't like Mr. Mercedes, and it's not because it's a thriller or because it's a crime novel. uh, And it's not because there's no supernatural elements to it. It's just that I find the main character unappealing. I think that Bill Hodges is a bumbling idiot. And I don't know if that's intentional yet. This could just be the first act of a three-act story, the other two acts occurring, in the pages of First Finder's Keepers and End of Watch. If that's the case, this is going to warrant a re-examination not a reread I'm not touching this again but a re-examination that would have to put it um, alongside the other two novels um, but I'll say that when it comes to reading finders keepers I was enjoying Little here's a little tease for next week um, but I was enjoying finders keepers so much that my enjoyment level plummeted the second that Bill Hodges came back on the scene um, in the book but with all of that said um i am interested in king and and how king wraps it all up with with finders keepers which could go to some very very interesting places so for the reasons that i did not like mr mercedes um he seems to be correcting them um as we head into fi- uh, end of watch um so we'll see we'll see this june when um when that that novel is released and you will get a fresh Stephen Kingcast review out of that particular book. So, guys, that's all that I have for this one. But um make sure that you tune in next episode as I tackle the, the sequel to this Finders Keepers. I won't be reviewing Revival, um, as I've already read Revival. So if you have not been listening to the Stephen Kingcast since the beginning, um you just might be kind of surprised why I wouldn't be doing what's next in the chronological order of publication, which would be Revival. Um, but if you want to hear my thoughts on Revival, just head back into the feed on on, on whatever, uh, however you consume the Stephen King cast, uh, because I, I reviewed it within the week that, that it came out. So you have all my thoughts on Revival, and I'm very proud of that particular episode, so head on over to that one. Listen to it um, and everyone may you have long days and pleasant nights and I will see you here next episode where M O O N spells Stephen King Cast Want to ride in my mercy?